Hi, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to start uh, just by talking about cargo cults in the South Pacific. <laughs> so uh, this is sort of a strange chapter in uh, sort of world history that uh, I'll just tell you on a, on a personal level how I react to it, and, and you can uh, draw your own conclusions. But, um, but this is true. You can look this up, and you'll, you'll see that it's, uh, that it's documented. Um, the, the United States military uh, landed planes filled with um, food and supplies on these very isolated islands. It was either during World War II or after World War II, whatever it was. And the, the uh, inhabitants of the islands were fairly um, isolated and, you know, to use probably a politically incorrect term, what we would call primitive. Um, you know, their, their societies weren't technologically advanced, let's put it that way. And, uh, and all of a sudden they saw these planes, you know, landing on their islands and dispensing food to the people. Now you can imagine from, from an isolated people what, what that seemed like, right? That seemed like a miraculous divine intervention, like God himself was coming down and, and feeding the people in, in, in an openly miraculously revealed way, right? So what they did was, they observed this, was that after the American planes left, they, they had observed that the Americans had um, placed um, uh, technicians, I guess, um, on, the, on, the, uh, on the islands to direct the planes so that they could land safely. So they were holding, like, you know, lights in their hands so that, so that the, the planes would know where to land accurately, you know, and they were hold the lights and move the lights, and the um, island natives observed how they did that. And so after the, um, after the Americans left, they wanted more planes to come, right? Like, they, well, why would they want the blessing to stop? From their perspective, it makes perfect sense. So what did they do? They started to perform this ritual of holding lights in their hands and directing, you know, planes. But they didn't, they, they were hoping that if they had just stood in the places where the American soldiers had stood and put lights in their hands like they had done and moved them in the right order that the Americans had done, planes would come out of the sky and land. And they would do these, um, it was called cargo cults, because they were cargo planes that were landing with, with, you know, loaded with provisions. So they would do this for years and years after. They were observed as having done this. Now, now what, what I find amazing about this, and now I'm just talking personally, is that you can see a practice like if you, like, let's say you didn't know the history. Let's say you didn't know the history. And you show up on one of these, you know, South Pacific islands. And you see these people dressing up with lights in their hands. And they're waving, you know, waving around these lights. And, uh, and I'm sure praying or chanting or whatever went with it. And you, and you didn't know the history. And you said, what's going on? And the person says, oh, they're, they're trying to... They're trying to summon metal birds out of the sky whose bellies are loaded with 
with, with luxury items. <laughs> you would think, wow, this is so weird and bizarre and primitive and crazy, right? That would be your impression, probably. That would be my impression, right? Like, what's the connection? This is like total superstition and crazy. And yet, if you find out that that practice was born from a real event that actually happened, then all of a sudden, there's a, there's a logic to it. There's a, there's a logic to it. And so, sometimes, what, 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 what you see is, um, in, in, in our own religion, sometimes there are things that seem like, why are we doing that? Why are we doing that? That seems so odd. But we're doing it because it's based on an event that actually happened. Even though it might seem very remote, it happened in reality. And there's no correlation between what seems to be the bizarreness of the observance and the reality of the event that it stems from. And so, so that's why that makes a, a real impression on me. You know, because I read a line one time. Um, it was in... It, I remember it was, uh, in, in a, it was called the, the Book of Laughter and Forgetting by Milan Kundera, who's a, he's a very well-regarded uh, Czech uh, uh, author of fiction. And um, he, he, he wrote a line that said, um, reality uh, uh, depends on continuity. So our sense of reality is that the sun rises and it sets, it rises and it sets, and because there's a continuity to it, that's what we say the reality is. But a real event can happen, and it just happens once. And there is no continuity to it, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in reality and it didn't happen. And so the idea to link reality with continuity is a falsehood. But it's human nature to do it. But if you think from a logical standpoint, just because something happened once, it doesn't have to have happened again for it to have happened once. So when you think of the revelation of the Torah at Mount Sinai, it doesn't, happen to, it doesn't have to have happened 10 or 15 or 20 times or every single day or for it to have happened. And if you look at our practices, which all stem from that, something happened. Something clearly happened. And it must have blazed an incredible impression on our psyches for a nation of slaves to all of a sudden take upon themselves incredibly rigorous lifestyle changes. You know, it, we don't talk about it so much because it's not, it's not so nice, right? It, it, it's a bit embarrassing, you know? But I just want to give you an example. And Rashi says it clearly, so I'm just telling you over a Rashi. But after the Torah was given, it says, that the, it says that people were crying at their tents, right? And Rashi tells you, why were they crying? Because family members couldn't engage in intimate relations with each other anymore. We understood that that, that, that that was no longer a possibility. That was no, and, 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 and what I find so moving and, 
And in a way, although you know, we, we tend to be just instinctually disgusted by any notion of incest, right? What I find so moving about that is that you see that something real happened. And it was so real that people removed themselves from something that was very meaningful to them in terms of the type of a relationship that they were having. And you see a genuine transformation in terms of the society and ethical evolution of our people that it took place. And you can isolate the moment that it happened when the Torah was given. Now that's just one example. But anyone who is a, you know, flesh and blood and who understands the physical drives of a person understands how powerful that they are and understands that to make a, 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 a fundamental change in the way that you behave on that level you have to be highly motivated in order to do that. Highly motivated. Like, how about motivated like you saw God speak? That's, that'll do it. That, that, will, that will do it. And it will almost have to take that to eradicate it on a national level where it disappears like that, basically. Now, of course, Rahmanul Etzlan, there are, I'm sure, isolated instance, but, but that's, that's very much the exception. It's very much the exception. But it disappeared on a national level, like, like that. How could that happen? Because everyone saw God speak. And the Ramban says something which is like a, a, just a, a, another blazing branding type thought. He answers people who say, where are the miracles today? So God, you're so good at miracles. Where are they? Where are the open miracles? How come you didn't split a sea? Like, I, I, I was born in 1962. Now one C has been split since I've been born. What's going on, God? And you know what the Ramban says? He already did it. He already did it. He's got to do it for you. He already did it. And that just completely changes the discussion. You know what I mean? God doesn't have to prove that he's God to you. To be God. That's very humbling because it, for me anyway, puts me in my place. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, you ever hear that, that, that bit of dialogue that's in movies, which is sort of like, the person says, no, excuse me, I'm asking the questions. <laughs> you know, where it's sort of like a reality check in a conversation in terms of who's who, in terms of their positions, Right? It's sort of like, God says, you know what? I did it. I did it. I did it. Okay, the Ramban is saying it, but so to speak. Very, very, very strong. Very strong. So this idea was a very big idea in terms of my own spiritual growth, that we perceive that that reality is dependent upon continuity, and yet something can be real, and be an isolated event. And we shouldn't hold um, ourselves hostage to thinking, unless something happens on a regular basis, that it can't be real. Okay. Now, I want to talk about... Um, I want to talk about the idea of... Uh, of the Mishkan some more, and I want to talk about uh, the idea of what it means. Um, We were talking about it 
over Shabbos a little bit, the idea of what it means to the to makabel the Omalchu Shemayim. Like that that's that's Hebrew for taking upon oneself what they call the yoke of heaven, and we'll we'll explain what that means. Um, and and everyone should know that when you say the Shema, when you say Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, right? You always you put your hand over your your eyes, right? You're covering your face a little bit. Um, and I heard from Rabbi Blech something I thought so beautiful, which is that in order to because what is the Shema? You're, you're, you're declaring the oneness of God. That the whole world belongs to God, basically. So why are you closing your eyes? Why are you covering your eyes? Because you're basically tuning out the illusion that there are many powers, many forces in this world. And you're kind of shutting your eyes to them. And you're getting into the, 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 the one reality that informs all of reality. And by blocking out sort of like this, the most superficial level of reality, by closing your eyes, you're able to get into the inner oneness which informs everything. Okay? So that's a little bit of the idea of why we close our eyes during Shema. Um, but when we, when we say Shema, we're saying that God is one. And we're declaring that everything exists within God. See, one of the most important teachings that um, I ever learned from, I learned it from Gedalia Gerfein, said it so beautifully. He said, what's the difference between someone who believes in many gods and someone who believes in one God? Someone who believes in many gods says, God is in the trees and God is in the sky and God is in the ocean. Someone who believes in one God understands that the entire world exists within God. Right? And that God saturates all of creation. Okay? So, all there is is God's oneness. That's the only thing that exists. The only thing that exists in the world is God's oneness. That's it. Okay. And who are we? What does it mean to be a human being? So, we have a soul. And that means that you have a piece of God within you. So, again, another bit of imagery which, which, which I really love is that think of the ocean and think of waves coming out of the ocean. So a wave coming out of the ocean is its own individual entity, right? But it's completely connected to the ocean. So that's your soul. Your soul is like a wave. It's individual, but it's 100% composed of the ocean and it's attached to the ocean. So simultaneously, at the same time, it's individual, but at the same time, it's part of the oneness that exists, which is the ocean. So that's another way of understanding our relationship and our individuality as it exists within the oneness of God. Now, what does it mean to makabel the Ol Malchus Shemayim? Because the reason why I'm bringing it up is because one of the things that we're supposed to do when we say Shema is to have in mind, I am makabeling the Ol Malchus Shemayim. I am taking upon myself right now 
taking upon myself the yoke of heaven. And again, we're going to explain what the word yoke is in a second. I'm taking upon myself this. That's what we say when we say Shema. Or that's what we're supposed to be thinking. Um, so, so what's a yoke? And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a word that, 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 that we don't hear so much used uh, today. Um, but if you think of an ox who's plowing a field, the ox is attached to the plow through a, a, a yoke. That's, that's, and so the ox moves, and as he's moving, he's pulling the plow because he's attached by this set of ropes or whatever it is, and that, those set of ropes is called a yoke. Um, so, so what does it mean that for an individual to say, I'm taking upon myself the yoke of heaven? So I heard from Rabbi Kersner, Olav Shalom, a very beautiful explanation of this. That just like the ox is tied to the plow, and wherever the ox goes, he's pulling the plow, an individual takes upon themselves to be tied to heaven. And wherever they go, they're bringing heaven with them. So it's a, it's a very beautiful idea. And that's called the makabling, which means receiving, taking on, the ol mahu shamayim. And again, we say this during Shema, and there's a hint to this in the word Shema, because Shema is spelled Shin Mem Ayin. Now let's go backwards. The Ayin is the first letter of the word Ol. Mem Malchus. Shin Shemayin. So Shema spelled backwards is Ol Malchus Shemayin. So you see that this idea is, is, is very central to the Shema. Because now to put it in a more conversational term, we have to keep on adding and putting it together and reviewing what we're saying. When I say, when I declare the oneness of God, I am simultaneously existing within the oneness of God, and I am simultaneously saying, wherever I go on earth, I'm bringing heaven with me to show what? To show the oneness of God and the oneness of everything. But now, what's my specific kavana? What's my specific intention as I, wherever I walk, that I'm taking heaven with me? So the idea, again, is oneness. So what do we mean by this? Is I'm not trying just to bring heaven closer to earth. Okay, that's a very beautiful thing. To bring heaven closer to earth? You can't argue with that. But we're talking about something even deeper than that. Because we're saying, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, oneness. If you bring heaven closer to earth, then you have heaven and you have earth. Two constructs. But we want is one construct. So let me give you another way of visualizing this. You know, the luchos, the tablets that we received at Mount Sinai with the Torah in them, right? They were carved into the, the stones. 
right? And it says that our heart should be like the luchos. So, so what's the difference between carving and writing? It's a famous question. I believe the Lubavitcher Rebbe said what I'm about to tell you. You see, if I write something, it's ink on paper. But it's two separate entities. You have the ink and you have the paper. But if you carve something, then it becomes one entity. <laughs> Do you understand how you've transformed the stone? It's now a single entity. The writing and the object itself is one. It's not like ink and paper, where they exist as separate entities, even though they appear very close to each other. So the idea of makabling the Omahu Shemayim, that wherever I walk, I'm bringing heaven closer, it's not so it should be like ink on paper. It has to be on the level of carving, where heaven and earth become one entity. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, one, one entity. And everything starts in the heart. Because you're making your luchos, you're making your heart like the luchos. When your heart is like the luchos, when you've got the words engraved in your heart, then what you do is then you're able to radiate out oneness. Because you yourself are an integrated fusion of heaven and earth. What were the luchos? They were stone written with the finger of God. That's heaven and earth combined. What is a human being? You have your soul. That's a piece of heaven. And you have your body. That's a piece of earth. What is, what's the Hebrew word for a person? Adam. Adam comes from the Hebrew word Adama, which means earth. Because the earth was formed into like a golem, like a person, like a human shape. And then God breathed the soul into him. But you see, the soul and the body are ultimately two entities. They're not one entity. They're two entities. And I'll give you a proof for them being two entities. Because, because we say after we um, use the restroom, there's a, there's a blessing that we say. A very amazing blessing. I'll read it to you. But the uh, key line that I'm going to focus in on is the last line to show you how ultimately human beings are not an integrated entity, but we're two separate things, body and soul. All right? I'll read you the whole blessing. <laughs> Blessed are you, Hashem, our God, King of the universe, who fashioned people with wisdom and created within him many openings and many cavities. It is obvious and known before your throne of glory that if but one of them were to be ruptured or but one of them were to be blocked, it would be impossible to survive and to stand before you. Blessed are you, Hashem, who heals all flesh and acts wondrously. Amazing, beautiful bruchah to make, you know? You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a way of thanking God for your health multiple times a day. Multiple times a day. You can thank God for your health. And also you can be um, sensitive 
to something that you take for granted or that you even think is um, a degrading aspect of your humanity, you can actually realize that it's a, a wondrous, blessed, you know, you know, mechanistic thing that God is, 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 is allowing you to experience. Um, but I want to tell you a Torah from the Ramah, the author of, um, the co-author of the Shulchan Aruch, you know. Um, he explains the last line. Baruch Hashem, Rofei Kobasar Blessed are you, Hashem, who heals all flesh and acts wondrously. Um, so what is the what is the wonder? What is the pella? A pella is a wonder. Umafli, that's the word pella. But what is the wonder that happens? So listen to this. Again, what, we're bringing this to show how the body and the soul are two units. The Ramah says, how can it be that the soul doesn't fly out of the holes in your body? You know, the, the, the ancients, I don't know that this is a Jewish thing, by the way, but the ancients would, why do we say God bless you when after someone sneezes? Because the fear is, is that your soul is going to fly out of your nose and you're going to die. So you need a bracha at that moment. So God bless you to continue to live, that even though your soul should have just flown out of your body, that nonetheless you should continue to live. That's where, that's where that custom comes from. Right? Or people say, gesund. What does gesund mean? Health. Not you might be catching a cold. You might die right now because <laughs> you sneezed. So it sounds like a little bit weird, but it's, it's based in an idea, which is a true idea, which is that the soul is floating independently within the body. And why doesn't it fly out? Why doesn't it fly out? It's wondrous. Now, just in case you're not getting it yet, let me make it ultra clear. Imagine you blow up a balloon, okay? So the air is in the balloon, right? And then you don't tie the end. What happens? All the air comes out of the balloon, right? Now imagine I blow up a balloon, I don't tie the end, and all the air stays in the balloon. That's a miracle. And that's what's happening to all of us right now, all the time. There is no knot at the end of the balloon, and the air is not going out of the balloon. <laughs> Pretty amazing, wouldn't you say? That's why you say that brucha multiple times a day, because it's really amazing. So, so I'm bringing this to tell you that the soul and the body ultimately, are two independent constructs. So now comes the command to us to do what? To carve these words on our heart. When you carve the words on your heart, you integrate heaven and earth. You integrate the physical and the spiritual. And you make a unity out of it. You makabal all malchushamayim. You don't just bring heaven closer to earth. You bring, you make heaven and earth one construct. And then what happens then is that you then radiate back out oneness into the world. 
So let me give you an example of what I mean by that. So interestingly, there's a certain physics to spirituality. Meaning to say there's when 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 people do mitzvahs and, and, and acts of kindness and love, they exude energy from themselves, life force. Uh, on a more mystical level, we, we talk about how when you do a mitzvah, you create an angel. But, but that, that doesn't, shouldn't, doesn't have to sound as mystical as, as it does. Because the example that I always think is, if you think of you know, what it feels like when you hug your mother, or you hug your father, or something like that, and there's, you can feel an energy being transmitted. You, you, you feel a life force. You, you, it's very palpable. It's very palpable. So that energy actually has a integrity to it of its own. And, and it continues to exist in the world. And, and that's what we say when we talk about the formation of an angel. Right? But you should know that the opposite is true also. If you use your life force for negativity and you admit anger into the world, that also has a life force to it as well. And that's the creation of a negative, or a, a, a negative angel, or a, you know, whatever, you know, however you want to classify what that means. But it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's, it's a bummer, basically. You're, 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 you're putting this negative energy that, that has a, a formation into the world, right? And continues to exist. So, so that's an example, one example of when we talk about the physics of spirituality, okay? Um, I'll give you another example. So, so this is going back, this is to support the idea that I'm, I'm sharing with you, that when you carve these words onto your heart and you make one unit out of it, when you transform your heart, right, which is the idea of bringing heaven down to earth, which again is the idea of makabuling omachu shemayim, which we say during Shema, where we're declaring God's oneness. We're making oneness out of ourselves. We're taking our body and our soul and we're fusing it into oneness. That it doesn't just end there. That once we become one on this level, we then radiate oneness back into the world. Okay? Now I want to show you an aspect of the physics of that, if you will. Which is that the Talmud says, that um, if you give someone tochacha, which means rebuke, and you yourselves are, are, are not keeping that idea, the other person won't listen to you. It won't be effective, the, the, the rebuke that you give the other person, or, or the moral instruction. And if, if you think about it, it actually makes tremendous sense. Because unless the person has that leverage, if you will. The words don't leave them with the velocity that is necessary to enter into the other person. Because they themselves are not keeping that idea that they're speaking about. So it just kind of, the words just kind of fall and hit the ground before they can really penetrate the other person's heart. So that's what the Talmud says. I provided all the explanation of how it works. What the Talmud just says is, the other person's not going to listen to you. 
That, that's my understanding of how it works, or why that's the case. But I would like to use that principle to illustrate the complete opposite. And I'm deriving this myself, but I think that it's consistent with the teaching of the Talmud. Which is that if a person really does hold by something, and they've sort of mastered a certain practice, so to speak, whatever that means, right? But they really do it with all their heart, let's put it that way. Then if they speak about it to another person, it will enter into their hearts. And it will have an influence on the other person. Because they themselves are living embodiments of that idea. And I'd like to use that to explain something, which I think is something kind of like a a bit mysterious that many of us have experienced in our own lives, where you've had a chance encounter with someone, and they've told you one thing, and it stayed with you your whole life. I think many of us have had that experience. And we wonder, how could it be? I just met that person on an airplane. They just said this one thing. I never forgot And I think that the reason is, is because what they told you is something that they themselves hold very dearly and have mastered in their own lives. And that's why those words entered into your heart. So now let's get back to you and me. This idea of carving these words on the tablets of our heart. Right? If we can create that level of oneness within ourselves then we will radiate that oneness back out into the whole world. And it will be clear from our actions. You know, if you look in the Torah, I can't quote you the the Pasuk, the verse exactly, but it says that if you keep the mitzvahs of the Torah, the nations of the world will, will, will see the wisdom of the Jewish people. And it doesn't say if you advertise effectively the mitzvahs of the Torah. It doesn't say that, you know, right? If you engage McCann and Erickson, you know, some like top Madison Avenue firm, the nations will see the wisdoms of your ways, you know? It doesn't say that. It says if you just do them. Because what's happening is if we do it and there's an exponential level of power to more and more people doing it, more and more energy and truth, and harmony, which is resolving all the tensions and all the competing energies of the world, enters into the world, clarifies all the dynamics, and it it cleans the air, so to speak. And the world receives the message. The world receives the message. And, um, you know, I was sharing with the Hevra that I had this experience, and I'm just offering you this as, as an example of the truth of what I'm saying. I worked with a a group of people for a period of years, and and I was very moved by this, which was that someone asked me a question, and someone else in the room said, why are you asking him that question? You know he doesn't say anything bad about other people. Now, I never made an announcement that, oh, you know, there are certain halachas, or it's called Lashon Hara, you're not supposed to speak it, I try not to do that. I never made a speech, but somehow just by doing the mitzvah itself, it came across and people understood. People understood very clearly. So you don't have to be an orator in order to get the message across. 
it will happen naturally. And the reason is because the whole world is made out of the Torah. The Torah is not just a book. The Torah is God's will for the world. As Reb Shlomo put it so beautifully, when you keep the Torah, you're praying God's prayers and you're dreaming God's dreams. Because the whole world is made out of the Torah. And so all the sinews, all the fibers, all the threads that compose the fabric of reality are all made out of the Torah and the mitzvahs. And so when you do the Torah, it it goes along all these networks of lines which are invisible to our eye, but are all in place, and they penetrate reality, and they transform the world. And I want to now transition, building on this idea, but transitioning to another idea, but it's going to build on this idea. Something that that is happening in the Parsha, that that I think is a, a just a, a way of understanding creation in our lives. Um, so when Moshe Rabbeinu, when Moses was approached by God right at the burning bush, and by the way, there's a detail about the burning bush, which I learned not too long ago, that I just want to put out there just to help us visualize it. It was a bush that was consumed in flames, but it wasn't burning. It, the, the, the thing itself was not on fire. But here was the detail that moved me. Even the leaves remain green. I think that little detail is a nice key to be able to actually visualize, perhaps, what Moshe saw. Even the leaves remain green in the fire. So, God told Moshe to take the Jews out of Egypt, and Moshe says no, and um, the Talmud says that that was a conversation that took place between them over a period of seven days. Right? It was actually a long debate of sorts. And it was explained to me that Moshe was really praying that this should be the ultimate redemption, And God was saying that it's not time yet. Finally, Moshe relents and takes on the mission. But the rabbis explain that one of the consequences of him um, protesting as long as he did was that he wasn't, um, he was no longer able to be the Koin Gadol, the high priest, and that that job was now going to go to his brother. Now, that's a very deep subject in itself, which we're not going to go into. What's the connection between him no longer being able to serve as high priest and saying no to this mission? That's something you can think about. But nonetheless, that's, that's a clear Rashi. You can, you can look it up. The reason why I bring it up is because there was a tiny window where Moshe Rabbeinu, in fact, did serve as Kohen Gadol. Right? Even though he wasn't to have that job, that job, of course, went to Aaron Aklein. But there was a small little window where Moshe did do it. And that was before the Mishkan, before the sanctuary, was officially dedicated on the first day of Nisan. Now keep in mind 
that the Talmud has two opinions when the world was created. Okay? One opinion is in Tishrei, right? And the other opinion is in Nisan, the first of the month, first day of the month of Nisan. And there are many very deep thoughts, which is one was done in God's mind and the other one was done in action. And there's all sorts of interesting discussions comparing these two opinions and, 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 and what happened exactly. But for our purposes right now, just appreciate the fact that there's an opinion that says that the world itself was actually created on the first day of Nisan. Okay? That being the case, that means because when do we celebrate the when do we when do we celebrate the creation of the world? We celebrate the creation of the world on Rosh Hashanah, which is the first day of the month of Tishrei. But we, everybody knows that that's the day that human beings were created, right? Which means it was the sixth day of creation, which means that the first day of creation was actually the 25th day of the month of Elul, okay? So that means that if you want to go by the opinion in the, in the Talmud that the world was actually created on the first day of Nisan, that means human beings were created on Nisan, which makes sense because we're talking about the first day of Nisan as the day that the tabernacle was de dedicated. What is the tabernacle? It's a miniature of a human being. So it should absolutely parallel when human beings were created, right? And it's also a miniature of the entire world. So, so really, you actually see the idea of Rosh Hashanah as we celebrate it much more clearly on the first day of Nisan than you do on the first day of Tishrei. Because on the first day of Nisan, you see the creation of a person and the world. Because both of those took place with the dedication of the Mishkan, which is a miniature of the person and the world, happening on the same day, first day of Nisan. Okay. But let's keep on going. That means that it was on the 25th day of Adar that the world was created. Right? Because it would parallel the 25th day of El. Right? would be, uh, that's what it would be. So we're in the month of Adar right now. <laughs> we're in the month of Adar Bays, which is the one closest to the first day of Nisan right now. So we're not on the very last days yet. But nonetheless, this is the Zman, this is the time when, when the world was being created. According to the Shita in the, in the Talmud. Now let's, let's go further, Okay. What did Moshe do? What did Moshe do? So, for seven days, he put together the entire Mishkan. Remember, it was something that we traveled with in the desert. So you could take it apart and put it back together again. Just like a person who's a Mishkan should be able to take themselves apart and put themselves back together again. You know, you have to know what is demanded of you in this particular situation. And sometimes that requires you to take yourself apart and put yourself back together again. So Moshe Rabbeinu was putting up the Mishkan and then he'd take the whole thing apart. Then the next day, this, he did this for seven days leading up to the eighth day. Put it together, took it apart. Put it together, took it apart. Put it together, took it apart. 
And on the eighth day, he put it together, and then that's, that's the version that was dedicated. Now, what did we just say? We said that the Mishkan was a miniature of the world. And in fact, the Medrash says that God celebrated when we completed the Mishkan like he celebrated when he completed the entire world. Now listen to this, because this came to me a while back and it blew my mind. So the Mishkan is a miniature of the world, and Moshe Rabbeinu is taking it apart and putting it back together time and time again. And what does the Medrash say? Before God created this world, he created and destroyed many worlds. So here you see, here you see the creation and destruction of worlds being acted out by Moshe putting together and taking apart the Mishkan before its dedication, which is a miniature of the world. To me, that's a phenomenal parallel. And that's taking place in the last days of Adar Beis, right now. Right? Not quite yet. We're not up to those exact days, but that's the energy that's going on right now. But I want to take it a step further. And this is really the point that I wanted to share with you. And by the way, maybe I said it in case I didn't, there during that time, that's when Moshe Rabbeinu was serving as high priest, just in case it wasn't clear. Okay? On the eighth day, it's assembled, and then that's the miniature of the perfected world. Because remember, the Mishkan wasn't just a miniature of the world. It was a miniature, a microcosm of the perfected world. And now hear this point. Moshe Rabbeinu is teaching us how to put the world together. That's what we're doing. That is the des- that, that's what we've been involved with for the last several thousand years. The Mishkan, which is a miniature of the world, we have to put it together. And how are we putting it together? According to the way Moshe, what do we say? Tarat Moshe. According to the halachas, the, the ways, the mitzvot, what is a mitzvah? The, the root of the word mitzvah is tzavah, which means a connection. We're, we're connecting all of the things. That's what we're doing with the mitzvot. We're putting the world together. We're building the mishkan according to the ways of Moshe. So when Moshe is putting together the Mishkan, that's just not a guy in the middle of a desert making a little grand hut. That's not what's going on. It's a a window into looking at what we've been doing for the last several thousand years and the whole messianic scenario of all of us together according to the ways of Moshe putting the entire world together. And each one of us is a Mishkan teaching us how to put our own lives together. And then he succeeds. And then the cloud comes down and it becomes the dwelling place for God. And what is that if not a miniature of the story of the destiny of the world and everything that we're involved in right now? And the more amazing thing is that it already happened. There's an amazing 
construct, which, which is that victory has already been achieved. Now we have to go out and achieve victory. It, it, sounds, it sounds counterintuitive, but I'm telling you, this is what's going on. Victory has been achieved. Now we have to go out and achieve victory. But it's all in place. All of the building blocks are already in place. And now we just have to assemble the parts. So I'll tell you one last thing. So there's a blessing that we say, Rosh Chodesh, it's part of the Shemona Esrei of Musaf. And uh, the blessing, I'll read it to you. Um, it's when we're, we're blessing the month. And the Ari has a certain kavana, certain holy thing that a person should have in mind when they're making the blessing, when we say, Baruch Hashem, Mekadesh Yisrael Chadashim. Blessed are you, Hashem, who sanctifies Israel in the new moons. So when you say the name of Hashem in that bracha, you're supposed to have in mind the arrangement of the Yudke Vavke for that month. And I have a little chart in the back of my sitter, so I can easily reference it. Some sitters, if you look on the bottom, they have it printed in the sitter itself, so it's right there on the bottom of the page. So the question is this. Mathematically, there are 12 permutations of the Yudke Vavke, one for each month. So what happened, what do we do now in Adar Beis, which is the 13th month? What are you supposed to have in mind? So this is very interesting. Comes, you only have the opportunity to do this every several years, and right now that opportunity has passed, but you can remember it for the next time. It's a very exalted avoda to be able to do this you're supposed to have all 12 combinations in mind. Right? That's amazing. That's amazing, actually. So this sphere, this time-space pocket that we're in right now, which is the time right before the first of Nisan, which is the month of miracles, which, according to one opinion, is the creation of the world indeed. Right? which is the period while the world is being disassembled and reassembled according to the Torah itself, which is the energy that the entire world is made out of. And of course, it's Moshe shepherding that energy from heaven down to earth and assembling it, right? And teaching us how we can assemble it. And I heard an opinion, I can't quote the source and I didn't see it inside, but my heart tells me it has to be true which is that there were 613 different parts of the Mishkan. <laughs> which has to be true. I, 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 I haven't counted it, and I can't even point to the source, but how could it not be? So, so this period right now, that the blessing for this month is all 12 permutations of the Yudke Vavke. So that means the, this, this time right now is like a little bit supernatural, you know? 
It's really above nature. You know, you have um, in Torah the, the classic kind of uh, thought, it comes from the Maharal, is that seven stands for this world um, for many reasons, but most simply because there's seven days of the week. And by the way, um, the Kuzari brings something very fascinating, which is that, and this is from approximately, this is hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you know, that, uh, that every society around the world has a seven-day week. Now, why, would, why should that be the case? Why should that be the case? Unless, as the Kuzari says, we all came from a common ancestor, as in Adam and Chava, right? Because it makes no sense that societies completely detached from each other all over the world would intuitively understand a seven-day week. Why would they even have a concept of a week? Why even have a week? Right? Who needs a week, if you think about it? How about just maybe seasons? This is around the time it gets cold. That, if I were pretty primitive, that would work for me. What are, what are you telling me? It's Tuesday. Just tell me if I need a coat or not when I leave the cave, right? That's all I really need to know. You know? <laughs> I mean, really. So, so seven stands for this world, and eight stands for that which is above this world. What we, what we say in Hebrew, lamala minateva, above nature, or the supernatural, right? Like eight days of Hanukkah, for instance, right? So you have seven and eight. But you also have that same construct, or a very similar construct, with 12 and 13. Because there are 12 months to the year, just like seven days to the week, very similar. You have 12 constellations, right? Mazalos, the zodiac signs. So the concept of 13 is that which is above nature, right? And so right now we're in the 13th month, which is this time where we're having the kavana of all the different permutations of the name of Hashem, the holiest name of God, are all, so to speak, infused within this period right now, where the world is being created. Right? So, I'm inspired. <laughs> Let's really become conduits to use that extra blessing that's in the, in the world right now to fuse our body and our souls, to turn our heart into luchos, where the words are not just written like ink on paper, but where they're carved into our hearts so that it's one entity, so that we can be one and that we can exude that oneness into the world and that we can reveal the oneness that's already there. And we do that by makabaling the Omahu Shemayim, connecting ourselves to heaven so that wherever we go, we're bringing heaven into this world, but not as two entities, as a fused entity, so that we should know wherever we go that God is already there. And you know, we say, we have the mitzvah, you should love God, right? That's a commandment on us, right? And we also have a commandment, that you should believe in God, right? But 
maybe as or for our generation, maybe even more importantly, we have to also know that God loves you and that God believes in you. And it's not said as much, but it's as or even more foundational because that will open up our hearts to be able to receive Hashem.